What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Meb Faber is co-founder and chief investment officer of Cambria Investment Management. In this conversation, we discuss why these crazy markets may not be outside the norm historically, why global asset allocation is important, how passive and active strategies stack up, what people need to know about share buybacks and bailouts, and why Meb is so heavily invested in farmland. I really enjoyed this conversation, and Meb didn't disappoint. This episode's brought to you by two sponsors, BlockFi and TaxBit. BlockFi is awesome. I'm an investor and a user. They've got three products today. They'll give you a US dollar loan against your crypto. They'll let you deposit crypto and pay you interest. And they'll also allow you to buy and sell on their crypto exchange. Go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP, and you can learn more. With TaxBit, they help you pay your crypto taxes faster and easier. That's right. They automate crypto tax reporting. You can go to taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp. Again, taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp, and you'll get 10% off getting your crypto taxes paid this year. All right, now let's get into this episode with Meb. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guys, bang, bang. I'm here with uh, Meb. Uh, thanks so much for coming on and, uh, and joining us. What's up, Pomp? Great to be here. You, uh, you're in good spirits and all the craziness of the markets, which I appreciate. Uh, for those that don't know you, maybe let's spend a quick two, three minutes uh, on your background and kind of what you do day to day today. Yeah, man. Um, I grew up a little bit in Colorado and North Carolina, uh, right down the road from the rest of your team in, in Chapel Hill in Winston-Salem. Uh, I went to school at Virginia, was a Cavalier, um, engineering background, biology I graduated at really the peak of my favorite bubble, which was the internet bubble. Um, you know, the the original undergrad plan was to go back to to complete a PhD, and um, I had some family members that did that and said, you know, maybe take a few years off, uh, go to grad school later, earn some money first. It's a long slog in the life sciences, and so. Um, took a year off to work. So I I was always interested in investing. So I worked as a biotech equity analyst. So kind of the two passions combined in DC, but they actually allowed me to go to grad school at night at Hopkins Um, and kind of never looked back. You know, it kind of the hobby became the career and vice versa and started to gravitate more and more away from biotech and more and more towards quant. Um, if you remember, that was the early 2000s was really the nuclear winter for the Internet. Uh, so I had the smart decision to move to San Francisco and uh, had worked there for about a year. Uh, and then in Lake Tahoe, said I worked for a commodity trading advisor as a, as, um, a startup there, but mostly mostly ski bum. And then moved to Los Angeles uh, in the early mid 2000s to start Cambria in uh, 2005, I think and uh never look back so uh, that's that's the quick one minute summary 
I love it. It's uh, it's always cool to be able to uh, kind of move between industries just based on your personal interests, which uh, sounds like you were able to do pretty well. Um, all right, let's get to uh, the most important part, which is uh, it seems like we are living in the craziest of times. Uh, it's like every day in the stock market, we're hitting stock uh, circuit breakers. Um, I saw yesterday we hit seven consecutive sessions of 4% swings in either direction, which set the new record. Uh, the old record was six sessions in a row uh, back in 1929. But this may not be as crazy as we think. So um, give us some kind of historical context as to uh, how, you know, um, kind of different is right now versus uh, the, the past times of the stock market. So like most investors, the best thing you can do as a young person is to lose all your money. And so I did that many times early in my career, discretionary trading. And that's what moved me more and more towards quant, by the way. And so, um, you know, run an asset management business now. But the foundation for this was I said, look, I have all the behavioral biases. I'm overconfident. I'll take too much risk that you give me. So I really need to understand and have some expectations to which to set an anchor to ground myself. So um, to be an investor, you essentially have to be a student of history. And so my favorite investing book, Triumph the Optimist, you can go back over 100 years, investment returns. Really, you can go back to Amsterdam Stock Exchange in 1600. But really, in the modern era, there's about 200 years. Um, but if you look at today and what's going on, this feels weird to say to a lot of people, particularly younger people, but this all is pretty normal. And the reason being is that stock market, normal stock market returns are extreme. And let me elaborate on that. We wrote a paper a number of years ago called Where the Black Swans Hide. And it demonstrated that down 5% days are totally normal, as are up 5% days, right? This is the tails of the distribution. Um, they happen about 1% of the time. Even down 10% days, totally normal. They happen about 0.1% of the time, and this is in all the countries around the world. Um, and then even bigger down days can happen, of course. You know, and in October 87, we had down 20 in plenty of markets around the world. I think today, some are down 15, 20% alone. Um, but the funny thing is, is, is people don't expect that. So as you came into this year, for example, all the Wall Street strategists, I did this in a tweet, they said, what do you expect stock returns for next year? And, and they clustered in between minus three and 10%. But if you look at the historical yearly returns, it's like 80% of the returns fall out of that range. Yes, that's the average, but normal returns are extreme. Look, last year we we're up 30, right? This year down 30 or wherever we are today, but um, that's pretty normal. Now, that having been said, you traditionally see volatility cluster, meaning as you've seen in the last month, these huge up and down days. And we did this study and we showed that most of these big down and up days occur after the market is already declining. So you could use something like the 200 day moving average and say, um, why though, it's like around two thirds or 70% of these big up and down days occur when the market's declining. Well, if you think about it, and it makes a lot of sense today, it's because people are emotional. Right. Markets are going down. They use a different part of their brain when they're making money. I think back to last year, people probably checking their account balance every day on Robinhood. They're thinking about buying a new house. They're patting themselves on the back for how smart they were. And that, look at that stock I bought. They're bragging to their neighbor. They're opening their account statements, all that stuff. Right. And, and the um, 
very real visceral physical experience of making money, it stimulates a lot of the same parts of the brain as, as many pharmaceuticals would or drugs would. On the flip side, when you're losing money, it's a very real visceral physical um, experience. It's painful. You don't want to open your account balance. You don't want to talk to your neighbor. You say, that guy's such an idiot for recommending that security to me. I can't believe I listened to his advice. It's so stupid. And at some point, you start to panic and say, I can't take anymore. I got to get out. Look, we're only down on the stock market. I don't know. Let's call it today 30%. And had you not studied history, you wouldn't have realized that, look, we had two 50 percenters in the last decade, back to 2000. But you go back far enough, you remember the Great Depression? That was over 80 and in plenty of stock markets around the world, you've had worse. And in a couple of stock markets, uh, Russia in 1917 and China in 1949, they said, nope, thank you very much. We're closing it. The government's taking all of your assets. No more private businesses. And that's had to do with communism. But um, you had to know at least what was possible. We did a tweet last night where, um, and this goes along with a, a, another article we did on expectations, and we said, by the way, this is a fact, so interpret it as you want, but long bonds, one of the most universal beliefs in the entire world of investing is that stocks outperform bonds. 99 probably percent of people believe that as a fundamental truth. But the problem is most people don't believe that stocks can go long periods of underperforming bonds. Um, and right now, as of today, stocks have gone 40 years underperforming bonds. Um, had you studied history, you would have known that. You would have known there's been periods of 20 years, a, a couple of times. In the 19th century, you say that's too long ago, there's a period of 68 years. So um, the challenge with that is most people think in terms of days, hours, weeks, quarters, and certainly not years. And that mismatch of truly um, setting expectations and what works in a long period and actually implementing it causes a lot of problems. And as, as your partner said, I, I said this on Twitter the other day, Mark Yusko, uh, one of my favorite quotes is, investing is the only business when things go on sale, everyone runs out of the store. And that's the beauty of the quant approach and having a plan, and we can talk more about that. But um, if you don't and let the emotions work their way in, that's where you start to see fractures and problems happen. Yeah, it's so funny. One of the first things he ever said to me is humans are really good at doing two things. One is uh, they always buy what they should have bought and they always sell what they're about to need. Right. Which is kind of the same thing around uh, when when the prices go down, everyone runs away. Um, but I, I think yeah. that uh, the book that you mentioned kind of um, about this optimism. Right. Essentially, what you're saying here is if you believe that it's not going to go to zero. Right these dips and, and um, kind of drops in the prices are actually opportunities, right? And, and again, as long as it doesn't go to zero, they end up having high volatility days or over long periods of time, you get kind of a continued increase in value across the different stock markets. But that's the difference between am I you know, being emotional today versus some long period of time actually having a plan, being disciplined, uh, kind of in control of my emotions, et cetera. Let me, get, let me give you a good example from the book. And so it looks at like, 30, 40 different stock markets back to 1900. And there's so much information, but it gives you a great base case. So if you look back historically, stocks have done around, let's call it 9% a year. Um, and then after inflation down around five globally, okay? Bond, so if you call inflation 4% during that period, bonds historically did around six after inflation two, 
bills around five after inflation one. So I call it the five to one rule. So after inflation, your expectations would be that stocks return five, bonds return two, bills perform one. Um, one of the key parts about this study is that it's really important to diversify. Um, because again, you go back to 19, 1899, we're sipping champagne, we're having this discussion in London or New York or wherever it may be. It wasn't altogether clear that the U.S. was going to um, dominate the 20th century. Um, you had a scenario where then in 1900, by the way, the vast majority of the U.S. stock market was railroads. Okay, um, But also the U.S. Was, wasn't the largest market cap country. Uh, UK was. U U.S. was only about 15%. They ended the decade around half, uh, the century around half. So massive outlier on the upside. Now, they weren't the best performing stock market. I think tiny South Africa was. But there were other ones, ignoring the ones that were zero, um, that had essentially zero return, Austria and others. And if you flip the equation and look at the bonds, same thing. Um, some bond markets did great. Some went to zero, usually because of hyperinflation, world wars, et cetera. But the beauty of this is, if you take a long view, um, and this we wrote a book about this called Global Asset Allocation, and we said, look, there's all sorts of investors out there, super famous investors like Dave Swinson from Yale, Rob Renat from Research Affiliates, Warren Buffett, Muhammad Elrin, that all at some point have said, here's a recommended asset allocation. Okay. Um, and we in this book, we said, okay, let's see as a quant, let's see how these have done in history. And so we took all the main ingredients. So if you're taking all the ingredients off the shelf, you got global stocks, global bonds, global real assets like real estate and commodities, gold. Um, and we said, let's look and see how these portfolios perform. And we took them back all to 1972. Um, we're going to take this back to the 1920s. We've already done it, but uh, hopefully update that this year. And there's some interesting takeaways. First of all, is that all the portfolios did great but they were hugely different. So some portfolios said you should have nothing in gold. Others said 25%. Some said 90% in stocks. Some said 25%. So there's these massive differences, right? But in reality, it turned out um, it didn't matter all that much. And let me give you a good example. So if you go back to 1972, and I said, Pomp, I'm going to give you a crystal ball. I'm going to let you pick the single best performing asset allocation model from this book. And I'm going to let you implement it from 1972 to 2018, 2019, 2020, whatever. Um, how much would someone pay for that in the billions? Probably PIMCO, any of these, Fidelity, uh, Schwab would pay billions of dollars to have this perfect foresight into what works the best. And I said, however, you have to implement this with the average mutual fund fee of today, which is 1.25%. Forget going back to 1972. Index funds didn't really exist, but the average mutual fund then. Um, and you say, okay, well, walking forward, if you look at the best performing asset allocation, implementing it with perfect foresight, but with those fees transforms the best performing asset allocation to almost as bad as the worst, rendering the wow. entire asset allocation decision almost meaningless. So if you're doing the just basics, the what I like to call asset allocation for dummies, your specifics don't matter that much, as long as you have some global stocks, some global bonds, and some global real assets. And I liken this to, to baking. You know, My mom's from North Carolina. She doesn't ever use cookbooks. She does it by feel, this much butter, this much sugar. If you exclude whole categories of, of ingredients, it's probably not going to work. So you put all your money in uh, gold, probably not going to work. But in general, if you have the main ingredients, it, 
it works out just fine. And so people obsess um, so much about, gosh, do I have too much in bonds? Should I have too much in stocks? What do I do this with this? And in general, as long as you have the basics covered, it doesn't really matter. As long as you don't implement it very foolishly, and most important, do the really dumb thing, which is make really dumb behavioral mistakes. Um, you know, and, and panic at the bottom, sell at the top. Over and over, we see so many examples of this. Um, today, we'll get updates. They do this every week. My favorite example of rationality is the American Association of Individual Investors. They do a weekly survey. Goes back to the '80s. They say, "Are you bullish, neutral, or bearish on the stock market?" And um, the most bullish reading ever was in December of 1999. The single worst time to be <laughs> bullish in the history of our lifetimes, and the most bearish people were was in March of 2009. Um, again, the sing you could not make this up. This is not some um, academic, you know, hypothetical. This is the real world. And today, it's probably going to print something really low. We'll see. Uh, but historically, if you sort based on those those extreme readings, it's usually a really good time. So. Um, that sets the case for the expectations of the base case. And why is that important? Because we did this piece recently online, a four-part series recently about what's going on in the world. It was like time to panic. And then it was a three-part series called the Get Rich Portfolio, Stay Rich Portfolio, How I Invest My Money, and Investing in a Time of, of Corona. And the first part about the Get Rich Portfolio was that if you put money to work, I hope there's 20-year-olds listening to this podcast because this is fantastic opportunity. You put money to work right now, you get 10% returns just for math's sake. 25 years, you 10X your money. 50 years, you 100X your money. You do not have to do anything. It takes zero effort. And we talk so much about this on the podcast and the blog. This is the beauty of capitalism and free markets is you can take a little bit of the sweat of your labor, put it into other people's labor, and magically transform that into multiples of money in future decades. So the decision by far that swamps everything else is when you decide to start investing, how much, how much you save and how much you invest. Um, and so the basics, and again, we can talk more about a lot more timely and tactical implementations and tilts and everything else, but this is, this is something anyone on the planet can do um, and do it for no cost essentially today and have phenomenal returns um, the hard part, of course, is is avoiding those uh, emotions which try to lead us astray. Yeah, it, it goes back to uh, I think it was Fidelity or somebody did a study that basically said out of all of our portfolios, who's got the best performing portfolios? And it's people who lost their password or died. Right. It's just kind of once yeah. they put it on, they didn't touch it. <laughs> um, and it's some of the basic yeah. mistakes I know that you guys have talked a lot about. You, you mentioned high fees, but also one that um, I find really fascinating is kind of this home country bias. Maybe talk a little bit about how you guys think about that and kind of why is that so prevalent, um, you know, especially here in the United States where things have gone pretty well over the last you know decades. And, and people tend to kind of think U.S. centric rather than um, as global as they should. So the 2010s were 20 teens were an exceptional decade to own U.S. assets, go full Rip Van Winkle in 2009, wake up in 2019. God bless you. That's all you had to do for the entire decade. And the problem with most investors, they're myopic. They extrapolate that infinity to to, you know, as far as you could see, going back to what Mark said earlier, um, they destroyed everything else. And we, we did another poll on Twitter. I love to, to source polls on Twitter. And I said, you know, by the way, people, what, what has been the best performing asset of the last 20 years? And I think it was like stock, U.S. stocks, real estate, gold, something else, bonds, maybe. 
and everyone said stocks, but in reality, stocks, U.S. stocks were the worst because the 2000s were terrible for U.S. stocks. But that's the way it works. One regime, regime sets the stage for the next. Emerging markets dominated the early 2000s. Uh, small cap value, everything else just crushed U.S. stocks. And then the 20 teens, U.S. stocks did great. And these things play out over the periods of not just years, but but decades as well. The problem is then people say, okay, U.S. stocks forever. And traditionally, markets that go up, if you look at the P.E., it's the P that's going up. So markets that go up a ton usually get more expensive. And what we're seeing right now is that markets that go down a lot, uh, it's uh, it's you know they're getting cheaper for a reason um and but it's the p it's the price going down but people extrapolate that so the problem is vanguard's done a bunch of studies here we have as many others people for some unknown reason and there's a known reason i can i can understand why but they put the vast majority of their assets in their own market so u.s investors of their stock portfolio on average put 80 percent in the u.s now that's not as awful as you think it is because the U.S. is around half the world's stock market cap. But in other countries, this happens in every country around the world. Spain, uh, Italy, UK, Japan, Australia, every single country does it. And in some of the countries that are only like 3% of world market cap, Canada, et cetera, it's a really horrible mistake because you're making a massive, massive overweight. People say, look, I feel comfortable. I understand these companies but it's really a false sense of security. And so we did a post on the blog and summarized it at the end of the year where I took my six favorite uh, research pieces on global investing last year. And one of them was from Bridgewater. And they said, look, U.S. stocks outperforming a global equal weight is an anomaly. In fact, it's only happened a couple times in the past 12 decades. Uh, it happened in the 2010s. It happened in the 90s. Before that, you had to go back to 1920. Um, and so, and there's been a bunch of studies on there that show that diversifying and buying the global market cap, you end up with lower volatility and you eliminate the outlier outcomes. We talked earlier, you eliminate the South Africa being the best, but also Austria being the worst. So you get somewhere better than in the middle because you get a diversification benefit. And it really makes no sense to just look at one country. And let me elaborate on that for a little bit more on, on as to why. So that's that's one mistake of just doing it. Um, um, and you ask anyone in the world right now who, who's living in Russia, Greece, Brazil about putting 80, 90 percent in your own market. And they say that was the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life because it's now down 60, 70, 80, 90 percent. Um, it's also compounded. But if you look, if you go back to the 1970s. And there was a neutron bomb that went off in the asset management industry. And most people think that it was indexing, um, which was a massive, massive invention. You know, John Bogle of Vanguard has become very famous for doing it. They manage over, what, $4 trillion now. Others were doing it, Wells Fargo, et cetera, on, on down. Um, and they came up with this idea that if you just bought the entire market, uh, you could do it at super low cost because you literally didn't do anything. You just bought stocks according to their size. And the funny part is if you ask people, a lot of investors don't know this. You say, what is like, say, uh, a market cap weighted U.S. stock fund? How is it weighted? And people say by size. You know, you buy the biggest stocks. And that's correct. But most people usually think it's by revenue, cash flow, earnings. And that's not true. 
That's actually the only variable is stock price times shares outstanding. That's it. There's no tether to value whatsoever. So if if a I know you love aliens. If you're an alien and you came down and you said, is that a reasonable way to invest? Does that make any sense? You kind of scratch your head and say, why would anyone invest like that? You would never buy a business like that. You would never buy a lemonade stand with no reference to value or a house or a car or anything else. Why would you do that with stocks? Now, the reason it actually works is because in the stock market, um, people understand this when it comes to private investments, but it happens in the stock market too. All of your returns are determined by the outliers. So there's about 5% of stocks in the entire stock market that determine your entire return. It's holding the Amazons, the McDonald's, the Walmarts, the Apples of the world that have these multi-baggers up 10 times, up 100 times, up 1,000 times um, that generate all the returns. So by indexing, by owning everything, you are guaranteed to own the big winners, uh, the, the power laws of investing. There's, um, if you look at the distribution, about two-thirds of stocks underperform a broad index. Almost half over their lifetime have a zero rate of return, and around a quarter, probably now a third, are straight up zeros over their lifetime, which is why stock picking is so hard. Just by throwing darts, you're probably not going to get a winner. But people are um, attracted to it, just like catnip, because they see the outliers and say, oh, my God, if I put 10 grand in, in Berkshire Hathaway in the 60s, I'd have $200 million today. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the base case market cap weighted investing. And that's good. But it's pretty suboptimal. And the reason being is that there's really free markets and capitalism, and it makes sense where um, if you invest in um, Apple and it gets the size where it's a trillion dollar company, you better bet that someone in Korea or in Europe wants to make billions of dollars too. And so you have that creative destruction. You have the competition where other companies come in. Um, and there's been a lot of quant studies on this. Research affiliates have done it. If you look at the largest stock, in the stock market, so by market cap weighting, it underperforms the broad market by three percentage points per year for the next decade. This applies to every country, this applies to every sector, um, and it should make sense, and it does make sense because it's really the price going up with no tether to fundamentals. So you can create an investing strategy, it doesn't matter what it is, it could be equal weighting, it could be weighting based on value, which we like, momentum, whatever it is, it could be weighting based on whether a um, CEO wears bow ties or regular ties or no ties, all of those should beat market cap weighting by about a percent or two per year. Now, why does this go back to the home country bias um, discussion and, and comment? Well, it also applies to the global portfolio. And so um, we said overweighting the US isn't a big of a deal because the US is, is 50% versus 80, which is what people in. Um, but the U.S. came into 2020 being one of the most expensive countries in the world, which half happens all the time with market cap weighting. So we, we just demonstrated why it happens on individual stocks, but it happens to entire markets, too. Um, and so if you look back in history, uh, the big the big granddaddy of them all, um, we like to use long term valuations called CAPE ratios, uh, which is a 10 year price to earnings. But you can use anything. You could use dividends, sales, cash flow, whatever. Um, in the 1980s, Japan. So for reference, long-term P ratios are around 18. Uh, you've seen countries get as low as five. The US hit 45 in 99, uh, but Japan hit almost 100. It was the largest market cap 
country in the world in the 80s. Um, you're probably too young for this, but every magazine article, every TV story, every book was about the Japanese business model. It was about how they're outperforming everything in the world. We all had to copy Japan. And it turned out it's just the biggest bubble we've ever seen. But if you were a market cap weighted investor, you put most of your money in the biggest bubble we've ever seen when it was the most expensive. And so this is something that happens over and over again, happened in the US or happened globally with the US, you know, at the end of last year. Um, and so it's the good news is a pretty easy uh, problem to fix. You diversify, you try to wait um, with a tilt towards value or any other metric. Um, but in general, the, the problem with putting all your eggs in one basket, particularly uh, a home country bias is you end up saddled to a very specific outcome. And you ask most people around the world and they would say it's, it's usually not a good one. Yeah, it's super interesting because you're right. This happens in the private market all the time, right? Especially take kind of the most extreme example of uh, angel investors in technology companies. What they end up doing is the downside is companies going to zero and a lot of them go to zero. So you actually need incredible power law to come back where you need the thousand X, 10,000 X, you know, whatever those numbers are. Uh, and what you're basically saying is whether it's that private investing or it's in the stock market, like the power law and indexing does work. I guess then what comes down to is how do you think about indexing fitting into a broader strategy, um, given that if you kind of have a pretty simple, I'm going to put money into this index, then is it just let me make as much income as I can, save as much, and just continue to kind of feed that strategy and, and don't um, kind of try to be too smart and, and uh, divert from it in times of either extreme euphoria or fear? Uh, or do you kind of think of, hey, build it out and then start to look at maybe alternative investments or something else? Like, How do you think about the stocks fitting into that rest of that portfolio? All right. Yeah, there's three parts of this wrapped in. I'm going to try to hit all of them. Um, you touched on private markets briefly, and I think this is interesting because private uh, power laws happen in both private markets and public markets. So VC funds, almost entirely, the performance is dominated. They do 100 investments. It's dominated by two or three investments. You know, if you get it, if you hit an Uber, you hit a Google, you hit something that does 100x, 1,000x, 10,000x. All the other ones are irrelevant. Actually, um, the same thing happens in public markets. If you own an index, you're guaranteed to own those. The problem comes if people don't use indexes and they buy a stock. Let's say you buy a stock today, six months from now, it doubles, it triples. You are elated. You are so happy and you're probably going to sell it, which is natural. It feels like the, the thing you should do. I can't believe it. I'm so smart. I double, triple my money. Well, guess what? At some point, that stock could go up. 10x, 20, 50, 100, 1,000x. It's a little harder with public markets because they tend to be bigger. So the market cap, you know, you're at 100 million range up to a trillion, whereas a lot of the private angel stuff, you're down sub 100 million, a little bit easier to expand. The, the hack, which used to be considered, I think, a bug, but I actually think it's a feature in private markets, you can't sell. So, you know, I, I've been investing in private companies back to probably 2014. And there's some that I guarantee you, I would have sold a thousand times over after they doubled or tripled in the public markets. But because I can't sell, you know, they've now have been up 10x, 50x, 100x. And so um, we learned so much about investor behavior. How many of us would be able to sit and watch that stock that goes up, say, 10x? But then what happens if it goes down 50%? You know, the, the, the great case is Amazon. So, you know, people, the media loves saying, if you just put 10,000 Amazon, it's now worth 20 million today, probably less after today. But, um, and, uh, but the problem is the path to get there, right? Amazon's gone through multiple 50% declines. It had one that was a 
I think 95% decline, who could sit through that? Only a psychopath, right? You, no one can. So indexing allows you to own those and not know it. Private allows you to do it um, and be stuck in it, okay? So there, there's kind of a, a behavioral hack, and I think it's a great one. In addition, there's some, some tax benefits to the private now where you can do these QSBS rules where you pay no taxes on investments under 50 million. You can put them in an IRA now. Uh, like Alto IRA and others, um, we can get in that later if you want. Um, but the thing is, again, going back to the beginning, is the base case investing is actually pretty damn simple. We give an example in one of our articles, and this is really simple, and anyone can do it, where you say, look, there's been countless famous people who have been um, low-income uh, workers who have just saved the crap out of it, and one was this janitor, and he put in $40 a week. And we give the example, so let's say you're 20 bucks. Most of us could come up with 40 bucks a week, um, put in 40 bucks a week for a decade. And that's it. You only save about 20 grand in total, but you allow that to compound until retirement and you have a million dollars. And it's not hard. You don't do anything. And the problem for most people is they want to look at it. They want to check. They want to sell it. And everyone wants to be a millionaire, right? Um, the problem is almost everyone, this is a quote from my buddy Morgan Housel, they don't actually want to be a millionaire. They want to spend a million dollars. They want to buy a house. They want to go on vacation. They want to buy bottles of the club, right? Um, but to be a millionaire, take the exact opposite skill set. You have to save. Um, you have to invest. And you have to not muck around with it. I mean, a good example right now, I mean, we gave a speech last year in, in Dublin where I was talking to a bunch of students. And I said, look, a bunch of you guys are going to probably be going to spring break right now. Um, God bless you. You're probably going to Ibiza, maybe in the U.S. It would have been, I don't know, Cancun or, or Daytona or something. Who knows? Um, let's say it's going to cost you all in $2,000. You know, or you could take that $2,000 and put it in, in, a, in a retirement account, an IRA and whatever. And in, in 50 years, that's going to be worth a couple hundred grand. Does a 60, 70-year-old you, can you have empathy and sympathize with that person? Um, or... Uh, would you rather just spend the $2,000 now? Um, and so it's hard. I said, look, you should probably go to a Ibiza or Cancun. You build a lifetime of memories and you can look back on when you're 70. But, but the actual implementation is pretty damn simple. And let's be honest, there's never been a better time in the history of the world to be an investor. Back in the day of my parents and grandparents, you want to buy a stock, that's going to cost you 100 bucks, 2% commission each way. Um, you're going to get just absolutely ripped on it. Today, you can buy a portfolio of stocks, bonds, ETFs for 0.05%. That's essentially free. If you include short lending on the portfolio, which most ETFs do, and the good guys return it to shareholders like we do, um, that portfolio is probably not already 0% fee. It's probably a negative percent fee, meaning you're getting paid to own the portfolio. Um, and that's phenomenal. So right now, if you're a young person, you should be ecstatic about being able to set up and have a plan and allocate. And that's the problem though, for most people is they just don't have a plan. I mean, we, we talk to thousands, we have over 45,000 investors at Cambria and we do all these office hours and the 90% plus don't have a written plan. They don't uh, have something set up to where it's automated, um, maxing out their 401ks and everything else. And the actual investing part is simple. It's the implementation, it's the emotions that, that get into trouble for most people.
Hopefully that was the part of the question did, I answered. I got a little, a little off topic. No, it was fantastic. So, so how does the passive investing and kind of that disciplined plan um, mesh with active strategies and kind of this world of uh, the individual investor who thinks they can pick stocks, probably not going to be very good at it, but there are professionals who uh, are pretty good at kind of active management, et cetera. How do you, you know, kind of balance those two things um, as you think about just portfolio management in general? Okay, so the base case, what I like to call asset allocation for dummies, is it doesn't really matter what you do, going back to what I said earlier, but the starting point for almost everyone, if you don't have a waypoint or a compass, is what I call the global market portfolio. That means if you went out and bought the entire world of public assets, and the things that are missing in public world is is private homes and farmland and some private real estate. But but if you were to buy every public asset in the world, what does it look like? You end up with a portfolio that's roughly half stocks and half bonds. And of that, it's roughly half US and half foreign. And that's a great portfolio as a starting point. Um, but most people want to kind of skew that depending on you know what their their own interests and and start to tilt away from there. 90% of what I talk about in our research, you know, our white papers, our books is the like final 10%. You know, we wrote a um, if you remember back again, probably too young, but back uh, decades past, they had this old uh, food pyramid where the, the government recommended what people should eat the most of and then sparingly all the way to the top. And it's funny to look back on because the, the base for everyone used to just be carbs. It was like bread, cereal, pasta, you know, pizzas, like totally inverted today on what people think would be good, um, good advice. And the, and the same thing probably applies to your investing. But, but in general, um, you do the big muscle movements first. And are the things at the top worth doing? I think so. I, I have a lot of departures from the standard advice, but this goes back to a John Bogle quote where he says, um, I said uh, indexing work for him, for example. Um, are there approaches that are better? Sure, but there's infinite worse. And so finding one that works for you um, is important. It's easy to say, uh, to set your risk tolerance and say, look, I'm fine losing 50%. And we talked about a lot of people who used to ask me, hey, Mev, this get rich portfolio, how do you uh, get, how do you hit 20% returns? How do you hit 30% returns? And I said, here's some ways, but frankly, most of you probably can't handle it. Because on paper, you say you can handle down 50, down 80. And then when it hits the fan, you probably can't. And we did a tweet, and this is kind of happening in real time. I said, usually don't see bad behavior until people see minus 20. Um, and then it gets exponentially worse every 10 down from there. So that's the base case, what I call the global market portfolio. And, and if anyone did that, it's fine. By the way, there's a 2,000-year-old portfolio called the Talmud portfolio, um, where it says, let every man invest a third of his wealth in uh, land, a third in business, and a third keep in reserve. So I call that real assets, stocks, bonds. That beats the vast majority of institutions over time. We've done some articles called... Um, why Calper should be managed by a robot, why Harvard should be managed by a robot, um, how to clone Ray Dalio's all-weather Bridgewater. All of these are pretty hard. This 2,000-year-old portfolio does a pretty good job of replicating what all these do with thousands of people, tons of fees, tons of effort, headache. You just buy this portfolio done with it. Okay, so that's the base case. Now, let's say you want to start tinkering with that. Um, and by the way, my personal portfolio largely mirrors the Talmud portfolio, um, which is, I do it a little bit differently because my background, my family and my dad's side came 
from a farming background in Kansas and Nebraska. Um, my old man grew up on a farm straight up, no running water, all that stuff. Um, so farming is, is sort of in my blood. So a third is in farmland. A third is in private businesses because I know that I'm friggin' horrible about behaviorally selling things. Uh, so over 150 private companies. And then, then there's the public assets. Okay. Um, I think there's some important tilts that make a lot of sense. And the two big foundations, the pillars to which to build from in my mind are nothing new. It's nothing that we've invented. Um, but that goes back a hundred years. Uh, so one over a hundred years goes back hundreds of years, but famously a hundred years in the U S one being value. So Ben Graham, you know, one of the famous, most famous people to talk about that. Uh, and then on the other side is what I would call trend following and momentum, which Charles Dow, uh, you know, creator of the, the Wall Street Journal, but also talked a lot about trend following early 20th century. We talk on valuation first. Um, it's actually pretty easy to come up with an estimate of how a stock market's going to do in the next 10 years. This isn't my equation. It's actually John Bogle's equation. Um, you know, one of the greatest contributors of the well-being and success of investors all over the world, particularly in the U.S. over the last 50 years. He wrote a paper in the 90s, and I call it Bogle's formula. Um, obviously, he would never say to use it for timing or forecasting, but he would say just to set expectations. Uh, and it's super simple, and it's three variables. And you want to know the stock returns for the next decade. It's starting dividend yield, then it's dividend growth, and then it's change in valuation. And that's it. Now, the dividend growth, you can kind of explode into inflation and real dividend growth, or you could also call it earnings growth, but same thing. So historically, and I'm going to round here, going back to 1900, the dividend yield up almost around 5%, gone are those days, although they, they may be soon coming back, depending on what, what the market's happening today. Uh, dividend growth, also almost 5%, and change of valuation should be a wash. Over ending 19, 2019, uh, there was a slight edge to that in the U.S. is the U.S. stock market got more expensive over, over the past 120 years. Um, and so you can plug in parts of that equation and find out where we are. So at the end of last year, dividend yield, let's round up and call it 2%. Let's say you got the same dividend growth as, as historical. Um, and the nerds out there who are listening, by the way, the dividend growth is actually a little bit higher than historical because of the way buybacks have sort of changed that equation but it's a wash mostly because the inflation's low. The big variable comes with a change in valuation. And so we ended 2019 at a long-term price earnings ratio of around 32, I think. And historical average is around 18. Now, if you have low inflation, you could say it's around maybe 21. So it's high. Again, it's not crazy like the late 90s, uh, we're 45, but, but it's high. And so you can plug that into the equation and say, look, John Bogle said this before he passed, by the way. He said investors should expect, I think, low single-digit returns in the U.S. stock market for the next decade. Now, he, his point wasn't sell everything and be done with it, but rather just to lower expectations. Take your medicine and um, maybe save more or just have real estate. And Vanguard publishes very similar um, returns. The problem, of course, comes that most investors expect 10%. Always, every survey. The Texas just did one where they surveyed investors all around the world in the last year. They expected 11.7 real. So you got to add on inflation. And I think the survey is probably not fair because most investors have a hard time distinguishing between nominal and real. But really, that means like 14%. But even at 11.7 is crazy because 
Markets have never returned that in history ever. So the problem you see is this massive dislocation between valuations. So that was the bad news. But you put that in the US and you say, look, every quant shop on the planet, AQR, research affiliates, GMO, yada, yada, would say low single digit returns expectation. Some would say even negative. Um, so a pretty bad opportunity set. Now, the good news is the rest of the world is cheaper. So we'll use end of last year and then we can update it. Um, foreign stocks were trading around average valuations for low inflation. So let's call it 21. Uh, emerging market down around 15. And the cheapest bucket, cheapest quartile was down around 12. Uh, and historically, tilting towards value has been a great way to add, let's call it 1% to 4% returns over market cap weighting. The problem is, obviously, it comes in chunks. Uh, you know, it doesn't happen every year. And as we've seen this year, it certainly can get worse. Um, and the beautiful thing about valuation is it's hard, right? The stuff that's cheap, so end of year, I mean, we're talking Russia, Brazil, Greece, Italy, Singapore, I mean, Norway, just nasty. Who's who the worst countries of geopolitical, of economic news? You know, the price is because they've already declined 60 80%. And on the right side, the good stuff that's hitting new highs, everything's rosy. At least it was a few months ago, right? The U.S. lowest unemployment on record had the first decade in history with no recession, the first year in history, calendar year, where the stock market went up every year in 2017, on and on, right? Everything looks great. Um, but one of the biggest things about using valuation is it's not just about buying the cheap, where there's massive career risks. Nobody wants to own those names because if you do and they go down, your clients say, what are you talking about? We own Russia and Brazil and Greece and Italy. You're fired. If they do great, they're pat on the back, which you're supposed to do. Everyone wants to own the expensive stuff. Um, but using valuation is every bit as much about avoiding the expensive as it is investing in the cheap. And going back to our examples of avoiding the US when it was the largest market cap country in 1999, avoiding Japan when it hit a P ratio of 100 and has had negative returns the next 30 years. Um, and that's not some backwater economy, right? Japan is the, still the top three economy in the world. So uh, doing those two, two things is hard. That's why you make it systematic. You put the rules in place. You have it so that you tilt towards value. I mean, look, this is Warren Buffett 101. It's not that hard. Um, and over time, it delivers. Now, the problem, and I'm getting a little long-winded, I'm sorry. Um, the problem is that most people expect returns to come within a year or two. That's how long of a leash they give people. Um, we did a, a survey on Twitter where they said, um, how long would you tolerate a manager underperforming before you sold that allocation? And it was like 80 or 90% said under six years and most said under three. There's been survey after survey that shows institutions are just as bad, by the way, where they say um, they'll give 95% of managers under three years and then they fire them. But the academic literature shows that's the exact opposite of what you should be doing. Um, the three-year time horizon, most institutions, they've shown this over 10,000 hiring and firing decisions, would be better off staying with the manager they fired and not adding the one that they're adding to or including now because they just revert. And um, if you don't mind, give me a, a little latitude here. Let me give you a good real-world example. I used to tell clients, they'd ask me, say, Meb, how long should I give this strategy? And you can extend this to asset class, anything you want. How long should I give it? And I used to say 10 years, and now I say 20. A good example is the stocks versus bonds currently. Everyone knows stocks outperform bonds. It's been 40 years, and they have it. Um, will we expect that going forward? No, with bonds at almost 0% you 
interest rates versus stocks, you would absolutely expect stocks to outperform. But that wasn't the case 40 years, so you got to wait. Um, but let's use Warren Buffett. Everyone knows Buffett's an amazing investor. Um, everyone didn't know that in 99. Article after article saying he's lost his touch, um, he's old fuddy-duddy. And we wrote a book called Invest with the House that you, you um, actually used to talk to Mark a lot about this, where you could track hedge funds, what they're doing through the 13F filing. So you could buy what Buffett buys when it's public, top 10 holdings, equal weighted, back to 2000, when the filings became electronic. And that outperforms the market by about three percentage points per year. That beats 95% of all mutual funds. You don't have to do anything. You could also buy Berkshire. The, the 13Fs outperform by a little bit, but it's very close. Um, you don't have to do anything. It takes five minutes a year. You just hired the best performing portfolio managers on the planet, and Charlie Munger, too, uh, and now the new guys. But why would, never, why would anyone never do that? It's because they go through ridiculously long periods of underperformance. Buffett has underperformed. We're ignoring what's happening this year. I have no, no idea. The last 17 years. So of the 20 years, he's underperformed and it's like 11 out of 17 calendar years. So every institution, every retail investor would have given him a three-year leash and then you're fired, Warren, you're fired, Charlie. But I just gave you a prescription to beat 95% of all mutual funds, zero cost, takes no effort, but no one would have been able to withstand Buffett because of that mismatch we're talking earlier, but this applies to active management too. So um, going in with all these asset valuations and the struggle with, with why um, this is so hard, if you look at the world right now, after it's been imploding the last few months, the good news, stock valuations in the US have come down from 32, I don't know what today is happening, but down to about 22. So we're back to normal valuations for low inflation. That's great news. Um, it's not back to normal full period, which would be another 20% from here. And it's not back to global financial crisis lows, which would be, I hate to say it, another 40% from here-ish. And it's certainly not back to all the way to, to five where it's been before. But you also have to hold in your head the chance that it could go back to 45, right? Or all-time highs. If we cure this, we find out that chloroquine works or there's a new vaccine, boom, we can, we can go back to highs. You have to hold both possibilities in your head, and most investors can't. Foreign developed is probably down to, I don't know, 15. Foreign emerging is probably straight up at 10. And the cheapest countries... We update this every month, uh, every quarter on the Idea Farm and send it to investors. Um, and happy to send it to, to y'all's list. A lot of countries around the world are going to be P ratios about five and about seven, which are generational buying opportunities. These things you doesn't have to be this week, this month, this quarter. Could be this year, could be next year. But things you could be allocating to where you will get probably 15, 20% returns going forward. But it's going to be really hard. It's good. To, you may buy them and they may go down 20% more. I've got to pause there. I've been blabbering for like 20 minutes. So uh, uh, you're still awake. Listen, uh, this is, it, it's incredible because what you're basically um, elaborating on and, and kind of hitting from multiple perspectives is this idea that um, if you are a short-term investor and you want immediate results, uh, one, you're likely not to get them, and two, you're actually going to make really bad decisions, right? Because the, if you're looking for that kind of quick feedback loop of, hey, I bought X, it didn't return what I wanted in 12 months, let me go change my strategy. It's kind of this belief that the average um, is the average for a reason, right? And so if you go through three, four, five years of underperformance, well, if the average performance is higher than that, at some point it reverts back to that, right? It's kind of the, the thing that Mark always says around, you know, people kind of buy what they should have bought because it's at the all-time highs and they think that it's, you know, all rosy, but then also they sell what they're about to need. 
So they sell it after you know a couple of years of underperformance, and then all of a sudden it goes on you know the run that they were all expecting three, four, five years before. And so it really comes down to I think one the emotional discipline, but also two the ability to understand the math behind a lot of the decisions, right? Which which you've done a great job of articulating, and just kind of trust that the math works. And what I find when I talk to a lot of investors is uh, it's almost like they know the right answers, but they feel uh, like they have to do something to feel in control. Right. Because if I underperform two, three years in a row, rather than stick with it, if I do something, then like now I'm in charge and, and I can kind of get myself out of this. And that usually is just a really bad strategy. There's a, we, we had a quote that we put out in this piece this past week, uh, again, channeling Bogle. We probably would have disagreed on so many things, but uh, we, we think he's wonderful where uh, he had a great quote where he said during crisis, you know, most people want to want to do the uh don't just sit there, do something. But the, the reality is you'd be better off with don't just do something, stand there, you know, sit, sit there, do nothing. <laughs> and so for most people, we said the whole point of this is you have to have a plan, you know, as Peyton Manning, um, as football goes the line of scrimmage, you know, he has a plan and you come into this and say, look, this is my plan. Now your plan can be basic. It'd be, look, I'm going to do global market portfolio rebalance once a year. So rebalancing has the effect of you're guaranteed to, be adding more to the stuff that's gone down and cheap and trimming the stuff that's gone up and expensive. So it's that constant discipline. There's a topic that we talked about in, in a podcast with Howard Marks and Robert Knott, where it's this concept of even you could go a step further and over rebalance or calibrate, meaning you add a little bit more. Um, and maybe say if you had 60, 40 portfolio, uh, you go back to 60, 40. Well, maybe if stock valuations are super cheap, you go 65, 35. But notice it's never like 90-10. Most investors, they want a, a super binary, all in, all out. But in reality, it's better to just trim a little bit. Um, and you get the blended outcome of all, all expectations. But yeah, as if you have the plan, and, and one of the beauties of a lot of approaches today is you can automate those suckers. You know, We've said, um, we demonstrate for public assets, most people, you build your portfolio, you let it sit, let it whir in the background, and you just should never touch it again if it's automated. And so um, we have a digital offering that does this and as well, many others. Um, and it makes the adjustments for you so you don't have to worry about it. You almost see it as a savings account and it just kind of keeps you your hands out of the cookie jar. Uh, but if anything, you know, in times like these, people start to act, act batshit crazy there's some things and dislocations you could add a little bit, but this is all on the periphery, right? These are little tilts you want to be making, not wholesale. I got to be all in on stocks or all out um, because all that matters is this sort of sleep, sleep at night portfolio. And I love to sleep. I really, really do. I have a, I have a young kid uh, who's quarantined now as well as we all are. So I'm probably not sleeping as much, but, but the portfolio is not bothering me um, because you have all the stuff planned ahead of time. And uh, it, it takes away a little bit of the, uh, the interest in, in mucking with it. Yeah, I know a lot of people like to talk about the robo-advisors and stuff like that. To me, uh, the whole idea of um, just taking people's hands off the wheel, kind of that savings account you talked about. So it's literally just let me automate as much as this as I can. Uh, I really remove myself and my bias from the process, I think, uh, will become much more popular over time. Some of that's technology driven, just there's got to be more options. People got to understand how they work, trust them, et cetera. Uh, and then two is I think it's a lot of people uh, just educating folks. Look, the, the more that you try to do things, especially for an individual that's not doing this professionally or full time, uh, the more you're actually probably screwing it up than you are uh, helping yourself. 
So I think we'll see that over time. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, dividends, share buybacks, uh, and bailouts, which I know uh, you have uh, sworn off talking about buybacks, but um, kind of let maybe we can just start with like, what's the pro argument or kind of the proponents of the dividends and share buybacks? Um, and then we can get into a little bit of, I think, the timely conversation around um, you know, airlines, et cetera, have done a bunch of this stuff and now uh, are looking for the government assistance. Uh, but I'll kind of just leave you with the broad so, so you can kind of take whichever direction sure. you want. Um, first of all, I'm going to lay some foundation and say one of the biggest policy failings of our you could call it government, educational system, all of us, um, is we don't teach basic personal finance, forget about investing in school, in high school. I think it's like 12% of the high schools in the country teach personal finance. Forget about in college, like we're teaching calculus, right? Like I was an engineer. I haven't used calculus ever. Uh, forget about differential <laughs> equations and physics three and all these other things. Um, but not equipping people with the very basics and the libertarians out there will be like, well, yeah, but your parents should do it. Well, look, a lot of people don't grow up where they have access to uh, parents. Maybe they're single family home, maybe they don't have parents at all. And the, and the education system is failing and it's not hard and it would benefit people so much. We expect 17 year olds to say, hey, you got to make a decision about the rest of your life about taking on 50, 100, 200, $500,000 of debt when you're 17 years old. I wasn't thinking about that. Are you crazy? Um, thinking about girls and beer, right? And so, uh, it's it's a tragedy, and the best thing young people have is time. Um, we talked about earlier with investing in a long term time horizon. So it, it's it's really frustrating. So when you hear a lot of politicians and gurus and everyone weigh in on this topic, um, I partially say, look, I get it because they weren't taught this. Um, they should know better. I, again, I, I try to ban this topic because it, it's an emotional one. It's like talking about religion. It's like talking about cryptocurrencies, right? People end up on these totally irrational. So listeners, come into this, please, with an open mind um, and try to understand and be objective. I'm a quant, right? There's no emotions here. I, I have no heart. So I always joke and say it's negative interest rates, crypto, and uh, stock buybacks are the three most religious things in finance. All in one. All right. Let's start with the basics and then we'll go from there. You're a company. Doesn't matter if you're public, private, whatever. You Let's use a public company, say you're Apple. There's only five things you can do with your money and that's it. The first one, which is what people spend 90% of the time on is the sexy part, is you can reinvest in the business. That means you're building new plants. You're doing research into a new computer. Um, you're hiring new people, you're doing new innovation, right? That's one. Second, you can go do M&A, you can buy other companies, which traditionally is actually value destroying on average. Um, but you can go take over other companies, add to your company to extend the F cash. So that's one, so one reinvest in the company, two, M&A. Three, to the extent you have debt, you can pay down debt. And then the last two are ways you return to cash to shareholders. You can pay cash dividend, or you can do a stock buyback. That's it. There's nothing else you can do with your money. And the job of a CEO, who, by the way, most of these guys are not dummies. They may be egomaniacs, but they're not dummies, is to pursue any project that has a, the highest return. Okay. Um, and so let's say you're at Apple and you have a great idea for a new teleporter. 
and it's going to be awesome. Good for you. Put that money there. But if you're a, a widget factory making widgets and you don't have like any brilliant ideas, but you're sloughing off billions of capital, what are you supposed to do with that? And you you can't just, so most people you say, well, you could just go hire a bunch of people and do all this R&D. Well, you're just flushing money down the toilet if you don't have ideas that are reasonable. Um, and if you get to a certain size, it gets harder and harder. If you're a $100 billion company, if you're a $500 billion company, um, these are the old kind of bloated companies. Um, you can't do anything with that much money. So what have they done historically? They go to M&A and also flush it down the toilet. They name stadiums, flush it down the toilet. So the long history, by the way, you go back hundreds of years, is that the original reason companies had dividends is because um, when you were selling securities to the public and ins institutional investors, you had to start, try to make them a little more like bonds. Like, hey, you can buy this company and it'll pay you some sort of like cash return, like interest, okay? And it's returning cash to shareholders. And so that was the concept. But buybacks, this is going to trigger everyone, but this is finance 101. This is something you should have learned as a freshman in college is that buybacks are the exact same thing as dividends with only two differences. Div buybacks are more flexible. You can do them whenever you want or stop them. They're more tax efficient. Dividends are, have a worse tax treatment because you're forced to take them every year when the company pays you. So you have to have money back whether you want it or not. Um, and then buybacks can also happen at a distance from intrinsic value for the company. And that's it. So if the company is trading, a stock's trading in intrinsic value, and let's say theoretically politicians did this, they never will. They have the same tax treatment. They're literally the exact same thing. And that's full stop. Okay, you cannot argue that fact. That is a one plus one equals two theorem, okay? So... One way to establish if a writer or a guru or someone doesn't understand buybacks is to look at what they just said, take out the word buyback and put in dividend. And if the sentence doesn't make any sense now or changes the message, well, then they don't understand or they're conveying the meaning or they have an emotionally charged agenda. Okay. Let's talk about a few more things. By the way, not everything is rosy about buybacks. So we'll get into that. For the greater experience of history for the past two, three, 400 years. This goes back to the Dutch East Asia company, or D Dutch East Asia. I'm going to get the wrong, uh, get the name wrong. Um, um, what's the name of the company? Anyway, 1700s. There's one of those. Oh, O'Shaughnessy and others, we, we have on our blog post, I got so frustrated with this topic. We have a, a blog post. It's called FAQ on buybacks for journalists, politicians, etc. And it links about the top 10 things to do with, with buybacks. I actually saw a great one uh, flow chart last night from, from Josh Wolf, Wolf and Michael Malvison. That's, that's on Twitter. You can post it in the show links. Um, for the most of history, governments and investors demanded that companies do buybacks because they didn't want CEOs squandering the money, paying themselves huge salaries, doing stupid projects, hoarding it. So they said, your company, you have to pay dividends. You have to do buybacks because we don't want you to do dumb stuff. And it's funny how the dialogue has changed. Um, so let's fast forward to the modern era. Companies have started doing a lot more buybacks since the 1980s. 
because there's a rule that got passed in the early 80s that made it particularly easy and gave companies safe harbor from buybacks, okay? So in any given year, buybacks started ticking up. In any given year, starting in like 97, buybacks have outpaced dividends, as they should because they're more tax efficient, okay? Um, now, there's two parts and there's two separations. There's the talk about buybacks and dividends from an investor standpoint, which we can get to in a minute. And then there's buyback and dividends from a public policy, et cetera. Why do buybacks have a bad name? First of all, they got terrible branding. Whoever came up with the name stock buybacks should be fired. You know, such like you talk about like uh, how everyone buys life insurance. Back when it's called death insurance, no one would buy it. The same guy, the, the Chilean toothfish, when he named it Chilean sea bass, all of a sudden everyone buy it. All right. So buybacks is a terrible terrible fra framing for it. What it should be called is flexible tax efficient dividends. Okay. Um, Warren Buffett understands this, right? Look at Berkshire. Berkshire has never paid a dividend and that's not quite true. It paid one in 1960s. It was like 10 cents. Um, and Berkshire famously, uh, Warren says he was uh, famously in the bathroom when they made this decision because he would never have made that decision. Um, because dividends force you to take, uh, take uh, cash back. Buybacks don't, you can choose to or not. Um, the things that I think are probably fair, many people associate buybacks with CEOs and compensation. And they say, well, these CEOs, they have compensation tied to earnings per share. They have options. Therefore, their only goal is to increase earnings per share. Thus, they're doing buybacks, yada, yada. Those are two separate issues. If you have a dipshit board, that is tying CEO compensation to earnings per share, they should be fired. Full stop, right? That has nothing to do with buybacks, okay? How you distribute cash has nothing to do with how you pay your CEO and your company. Um, in the same genre, you have to talk about companies that also issue shares, correct? So there are a lot of tech companies and other companies to reward employees that issue stock options, all right? So that's share issuance. So you're diluting the shareholder. And on the right hand, they go and buy back the shares. Okay. So it's somewhat of a wash in many cases. Um, I think that's a fair criticism, but it's not a criticism of buybacks. It's criticisms of structure and how boards operate. Um, and that's a policy decision that has nothing to do with buybacks. Um, another example is, is people love to take a, a sample size of one and they'll look at a company that has been buying back a bunch of stock over the past 10 years and then maybe gets into hard times where the share price goes down. They say, look how stupid that was to buy back stock and now the share price is down. That was so dumb. They wasted so much money. But many of those companies were also issuing dividends. And you say the same thing. It's simply a return of cash to shareholders. Um, it's the same exact phenomenon. Now, as a shareholder, you should never want to own an expensive stock. So if you're Warren Buffett, you have a quantitative measure. He says, look, we'll buy back shares of Berkshire when they get below, I think it's 1.3 times book. I think, I think they're right around one now. So he's probably buying a bunch of Berkshire this year, this quarter, uh, this month. Um, most CEOs don't have that in place. That having been said, if you look at the historical valuations of company that are, companies that are issuing shares, companies that are buying back stock, and companies that are buying back a lot of stock, the ones that are issuing shares traditionally are trading at valuation premiums. The ones that are buying back stock are trading at valuation discounts. And the ones that are backing up the truck and buying a boatload traditionally are tra trading at valuation big discounts. So on average, they've done a good job. It doesn't mean you can't come up with some company um, that hasn't. 
And then a second part is, is the company just poorly managed? People don't talk about, hey, they wasted a bunch of money on that new plant in upstate New York, or hey, they paid out billions in dividends. They shouldn't. They should have been paying down debt. That's a CEO decision, and whether you wanted to lever up the company or not, it's up to you. But on the flip side, a lot of companies in Europe, a lot of companies in Japan have the opposite structure where they have a ton of cash and they're just very bloated, what you call these zombie companies. Um, all of this having been said, I'm a buyback agnostic. doesn't sound like it, but I'm a buyback agnostic. A very simple fix to all of this is legislature, politicians, eliminate the double taxation of dividends. Okay, so you remove the tax of a company paying dividends and all of a sudden buybacks become fairly irrelevant um, because companies could pay out dividends whenever they wanted, not have to get taxed, but most people don't want it. Um, this dovetails and interrupt me at any time because I can rant for a while. Um, so one, one question here is, um, and I think you nailed the issue on the head, right? So I'm actually in the camp with you of the buyback is just a dividend, right? In a different format, but but it's ultimately driving value for the shareholder, um, especially when it's done really well. I think the only thing I'd add to that is if you look at the dividends versus the buybacks, so the numbers I looked at yesterday, um, and I think I have these right, is about 52%, the S&P, uh, uh, 52% of free cash flow went to share buybacks. The reason why that's so high, I think, is because executive compensation is tied to it. And, I, and my guess here is people rail against it so much because the easier, the harder thing to do would be to rail against the board of directors and say, hey, you shouldn't make the compensation, right? You, sh you shouldn't tie it to share, uh, share price or earnings per share, et cetera. And so the incentives are off. Well, the only thing that the quote unquote public or those that aren't on the board can really rail against when it's an industry wide thing is, oh, the share buyback's the problem. And so what I don't know is, is there another solution than just railing against the share buybacks where you actually go after the compensation structures? Because if you change the incentives, to your point, the share buyback and the dividend is completely the same thing, right? So um, if you go check out all these FAQs on my blog post, it, it attacks almost every one of these myths. And there's much um, more in-depth academic people that have, Dalmadaran from NYU, Malvison we mentioned, Cliff Asnes, on and on and on talk about each, in some cases, um, some of these myths one by one. And one of the studies, and I, I may get it precisely wrong, is that uh, they looked at the EPS and companies doing buybacks and not, and it was no difference, right? The companies that were tying it to EPS weren't doing more buybacks than the one that, that, that weren't. That having been said, it's a stupid metric, right? Um, Warren Buffett, most of these good CEOs, capital allocators, there's a great book called The Outsiders, um, could write down on a napkin in probably five minutes a compensation structure that made sense that's not tied to short-term stock price, but rather long-term performance of the company. And that's not that hard. Um, I just think it's a boogie, boogeyman, a, a demonization that people like to latch onto. Like I mentioned, a very simple answer is, look, I don't care. Um, but think about what happened. So like Elizabeth Warren and others came out and said, we're going to make buybacks illegal. And I say, okay, you know what you just did? You just said CEO has a lot more cash on his hands. What do you think he's going to do with it? 
He's going to go spend it. He's going to pay himself more. He's going to pay his execs more. He's going to go buy a, a jet. He's going to go acquire other companies and empire build, right? Like, so that's the last thing you want to be doing. Um, so it's it's tough because, you know, there's a lot of things that people like to, to call a, a attention to that just it doesn't hold up in the data. And so I've kind of barred myself on Twitter. Sometimes I can't help myself. But almost every one of those myths, you can go down, down, down the list and say, no, that's actually not true. Or the data says this, the data says that. But again, it goes back to the CEO's only job is to maximize where he's using that cash. And so is it paying down debt? It could be. Is it new projects? Maybe. Is it a, is it uh, buybacks or dividend? Like all these things, that's his job. And um you know, it, it's a topic that's emotionally charged right now because we're talking about bailouts, for example. And let's be clear, if the government steps in, and there's a long case study history of this or the right way to do it. Um, you bail out a company, whether it's an airline, a cruise ship, um, these stockholders should be zeroed, right? The, the CEOs, the executives that have executive uh, compensation that's tied to shares, those shares should be worth zero. But that's the way it's always worked. That's bankruptcy, right? Company goes bankrupt. The U.S. could easily say, look, fine, we're going to um, backstop some of these airlines. That's fine. But your equity is now zero. Then it goes to bondholders, et cetera. Um, the crony capitalism comes in where they say, no, we're going to protect the shareholders. That's the whole point of being an equity shareholder. You accept that risk, right? Stocks go to zero all the time. Um, like we mentioned earlier, the distribution is like a third of them go to zero. And so people like Mark Cuban, love him, God bless him. But he's like, hey, we bail out some of these companies. They should never be allowed to buy back stock again. And I'm like, that just, it doesn't make any sense. They should not be allowed to pay dividends. What do they do with the cash? And by the way, if you get to be a fat bloated company, those dividends and buybacks, guess what happens with them? They get recycled back into the young emerging growth companies that are employing and hiring lots of people versus these big fat bloated ones. So anyway, it's... um. Look, man, it, it's a topic that just I think is is emotional um, and is something that people want to latch on to. But I, I just I don't think there's any uh, there there. Little things you could change on the edges. But for the most part, um, and by the way, we haven't mentioned this on the investment side. The number one thing you want to be attracted to is companies that are high quality trading at cheap valuations. And Buffett says this. Um, the best thing a company can do with its cash, if it's trading below intrinsic value, and I'm a quant, so you come up with quant value metrics, is buy back their own shares because you're buying back something for 80, 60 cents that's trading for a dollar. So you can take this all the way back to the 1920s. We call it shareholder yield, but it's combining dividends and net buybacks. So net of issuance, uh, combining the two together um, and figuring out dividends are the most nonsensical investing strategy on the planet. They're tax efficient, inefficient. Um, and it's kind of a crappy way to do value investing. It's not a real value tilt. They tend to be leveraged companies, kind of junky. You do the shareholder yield, you add a value filter, it's stomped almost all dividend uh, investing approaches all the way back to the 20s and in most decades. So there's from the allocator standpoint as well as the, um, but what you want at the end of the day is a good business CEO is thoughtful, who's thinking about all the ways to, to um, maximize return and do so in a way, by the way, the problem we're seeing this year is where it's anti-fragile right? Where a short-term disruption is not going to zero the company um, because those things happen. 
Yeah, I, I think that we actually see eye to eye on a lot of this in terms of the share buyback isn't the quote unquote evil thing, right? To me, it's the the bailouts and, and really the structure of how the bailouts happen. Um, and, and the other piece of it too is uh, you specifically said, look, the risk you take as the equity holder is that it can go to zero, right? You, you can get zeroed out there. Um, and, and again, I think that there's a balance between, um, you know, hey, we had a really great business. There was this black swan event and we didn't do anything wrong, but this occurred versus I think when people look at stuff and say, hey, you had you know 80% of your free cash flow you spent over the last five years uh, doing the share buybacks. Well, if you had held that, you could weather this. Then I think the question really comes down to you know what's the right answer? Unfortunately, regardless of how much people want to debate, I don't think there is a right answer. It's that's why there's the debate, right? Is because many different people have yeah. different perspectives of it. But but I think you articulated kind of what that trade off there is. I, you know, I would love for uh, politicians to make dividends tax free. Uh, they won't because it generates revenue for the government. In the same way, look. By the way, there's nothing more predatory that every state has and the government has than lottery system that generates tons of revenue. But if you're to ask a a lawmaker, by the way, you're preying on uneducated, poor people. Why are you doing this? And there's plenty of other systems in the world that have savings-based lotteries that actually help people save, but they're addicted to the revenue, right? So it's the same thing with dividends versus buybacks. Like a simple solution overnight, just make dividends tax-free. Yeah, I love it. Um, some of the questions that we got online uh, as we were preparing for this, uh, a lot of people want to know what's up with the heavy allocation of farmland. You talked about it a little bit earlier. Maybe go into a little bit more detail. Just when you talk about farmland, um, kind of how do you think about good investments there versus bad investments, and and also through market cycles, just holding the same allocation of the farmland, uh, or does that change over time? Farmland's tough. You know, um, it's. An asset class, it's it's one of the few that's not well represented in the global market portfolio because the vast majority of it worldwide um, historically has been in individuals or massive institutions like Nuveen or Kreft that own just these enormous farms. There's not a whole lot of middle ground, and it's been hard for most investors to allocate to. Um, so today, if you wanted to go get a farmland allocation, you got to either go buy a farm and then manage it, which is a nightmare, by the way. Um, thankfully we have a lot of uh, friends and family, um, in the area that can help out. Um, two is you could invest in a private fund that does it. We've had a few of those on the podcast that talk about it. There's some platforms that are coming out that make it a little easier. Uh, if I was a young entrepreneur not doing what I do now in the ETF business, um, you know, we would probably go and launch a public REIT. There's only like one or two that do it. that would give access to it. Uh, so it's, it's hard. Um, it's a great diversifying investment. Like a lot of investments are just non-correlated. If you got a blueberry farm in Oregon or a wheat farm in Kansas or an almond farm in California, or like those things don't traditionally correlate directly to uh, what's going on in the rest of markets, which is what you want. And then you have, of course, the um, the private benefit, which is I, I put a picture on Twitter the other day of me walking through a wheat farm and says, look, I'm trying to value this today. It hasn't traded in forever. Like I have no idea. I couldn't sell it if I wanted to. So like for a lot of people, um, for me, it's farmland. I don't own a house, but for a lot of people, their biggest illiquid investment is their house, right? They probably maybe with Zillow can come up with a little more today um, valuations, but they can't sell it tonight. It's not something they would if they wanted to, it's a lifelong investment. Um, 
but it's a big part of people's wealth. And so one of the reasons people across the country and the world have become so rich and wealthy with real estate investing is because it's money they would have spent otherwise. You know, you're putting money into real estate like it's it's getting invested same way with stocks or else. So farmland, but if it's personal for me, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a connection to uh, my family and my history. Would I be investing in it had I not that had not that? Probably not. I mean, I would be attracted to it. There's a lot of asset classes I'm attracted to that I think are interesting, but certainly wouldn't be such a large allocation. Plus, you can go out and shoot guns and hide out in the world and uh, you know, um, drive around on ATVs and horses and everything else. You're talking to a guy who also grew up in North Carolina, so those are all uh, fond memories for me as well. <laughs> what uh, What are your thoughts on uh, the stimulus and, and kind of a lot of uh, the monetary uh, policy that's coming out right now in response to uh, you know kind of market conditions at the moment? Um, there's areas and things I'm very opinionated on. Other things that fall somewhat in the middle. Uh, I think this is hard. Um, it's hard because there's so much uncertainty. You know, um, we outlined this, we, we did a piece called investing in the time of Corona, where we said, look, here's a bull case. And we said, um, governments around the world respond. Everyone's doing testing, self-quarantine works. There's treatments developed. Hey, maybe the malaria medication works. A vaccine comes along. Coronavirus is never um, seen again, essentially, or it's reduced. Markets hit all-time highs by year end, right? Um, then you have the bear case, which is, uh, governments respond, but it's too late. The virus is everywhere. It goes exponential. Um, you know, people are despondent. Uh, treatments don't work. A vaccine is two years away. The summer comes around, has some relief, and then the virus comes back in the fall, and it happens again, and markets go down another 50%. Like, you have to be able to hold those two ideas in your head at the same time, maybe not as equally plausible, but as possible. And we talk about this a lot with valuations. And we used to say with valuations last year, we do speeches We say, this is the stock market is trading at 32. What's most likely? Most likely is it drifts back down, mean reverts to around average, in which case you'll get 4% or 1% a year. Could it go back up to 45? Sure. And you have to plan for that scenario. We'd say, what, how, does, how does it get there? How does it get to 100p ratio? Maybe Elon Musk invents free energy. It could also go back down to five, which has happened before P ratio, in which case stocks decline 80%. What would cause that? Who knows? Could be something we're experiencing. So you have to hold both thoughts in your head and prepare for both outcomes. What's most likely to happen? Something in the middle. So playing blackjack, you know, most likely events or statistical, the outliers always happen. You know, there's the idiot at the end of the table that, you know, hits a 19 and gets a two. And he says, see, I told you so, or something like that. Um, but unlikely. So you prepare for both um, to be somewhat... Um, anti-fragile and the way that i do it and we didn't really touch on it is um the hardest part of the public market stuff is staying the course so buy and hold investing works great you have a uh, over 100 years of working great the problem with buy and hold investing is that um and this is stocks bonds real assets is that all the bad stuff happens at the same time so you have a bear market you have a recession people losing their jobs their account balances go down. It's all happening at once. So the hardest part with buy and hold is usually during the bear market, people sell on the way down or to the point where they just can't take it anymore, right? Um, but it, traditionally, if you hold and add over time, it's a great investing strategy. 
The flip side, which we didn't really talk about, which is half of my investment portfolio, which is larger than any institution in the world that I've ever talked to, um, is in trend following strategies. And that can mean a lot of different things, but the very basic is you're investing in a market that go is going up, you're out when it's going down. You could use something like a 200-day moving average. We, we have a paper coming out that investing in markets at all-time highs is actually a great idea, um, or like say percent of all-time highs. Um, the problem with trend following, so you can apply that to an entire portfolio. Uh, we wrote an old paper back in 2006 in the Journal of Wealth Management um, that successfully navigated the global financial crisis. And I didn't think I'd ever see anything like that again in my lifetime. And sure enough, that portfolio, which was so basic, it looked at 200 day or 10 month moving average on updates once a month on stocks, foreign stocks, bonds, REITs, commodities, and it exits each of those when it's in a downtrend. Um, going into March, it would have been 100% cash and bonds. So who knows how this is going to play out. But the thing with trend following is that it's also hard to follow. It's hard to follow because it goes through long periods of underperformance. The entire 20 teens, anything other than buy and hold US stocks, struggled. And, and there's old, I can't remember if Warren said it or Charlie said it, but um, they talk about you know the emotions of fear and greed is not what drives markets, but the biggest thing being envy. And so the problem with trend following is that if you're underperforming and chopping along when all your neighbors are making hay in stock markets, you're not going to stick with it. But the beauty of this approach is what we call the Trinity portfolio, which is what I do with all my um, public assets, put it into one fund. And, um, and by the way, listeners, I think this is really important because uh, a lot of people don't know this. The vast majority of, of mutual fund managers depending on the category, it's like 50 to 90% have nothing invested in their own funds, zero dollars. And if you go up to even 100 grand, it's even less. I put all my money into our own funds. We have 11. But half is in my hold and half is in trend following. And why does that work for me? Because in a year like 2019, I am so happy to have a big chunk of my money and buy and hold as markets romp you know, up in the world. In 2020, I'm happy to have um, a trend following allocation that markets and depending on the fund you use, we, some of our, some of other people's either go to cash and bonds, or they'll straight up short some of these, uh, uh, asset classes. And if you look at managed futures, most of those are having a pretty good year. Many of those are up. And so the combination of the two, it's like a yin yang. Thank God we have trend following in 2020. Cause if it does get worse, if we do have this bear case, hopefully I'm protected. But if markets rip back up, we find some treatments and the bull case happens, and thank God I have the, the buy and hold side. And this lets me behave. Um, Bogle used to say he's, he put half in cash and half in bonds. He said because um, half the time he spent worried he had too much in stocks, and the other time he spent he had worried too, he had too much in bonds or too little, vice versa. It's the same thing. So th that works for me. It may not work for a lot of people. Um, the one other thing that so, – so as far as – your question I answered as an investor, but as a policy question, um, it's really tough, man. You know, I, I think a lot of um, hopefully this is a short term thing. I read last night the Imperial College report and do not read that if you um, want to go to sleep or or uh, not have huge anxiety and depression for the next six months. Um, we just don't know. And so, look, I, I think that is the government's responsibility and the private sector hopefully can help as much and, and try to find treatments, but is to backstop 
those in need when you have something that's totally out of control. It's not to backstop the fucking cruise line, excuse me, but it's to backstop um, individuals that are, you know, in the restaurant industry, the service industries, the people, the healthcare workers that still have to go to work. Um, God bless them. You know, you and I are, are lucky enough to be able to do this sort of job remote. Um, how they do that, I, I don't, you know, whether it's universal basic income, whether it's incentives, um, I'll leave that to the to the lawmakers. I, I don't know the best answer, but um, there's probably a sensible basic idea that that works. Yeah, I um I wrote this today about uh, the unemployment levels, and I went back and I looked at like Great Depression and kind of really tried to understand uh, the unemployment levels there. And one of the data points that just blew me away was um, in 1929, right before it started in kind of August 29, um, unemployment was at 3.1 percent, right? So very similar to where we are today, and it kind of ramped up over uh, from 29 to 33 up to that 25 percent number that everyone always kind of um, you know high lights and yells and screams about. But in the second and third year, it was like eight point something percent and then 15 percent. And so those are still very big numbers, right? But they're not 25 percent. And uh, I started doing some back of the envelope math, just seeing the unemployment um, kind of multiples that we're seeing. So Ohio, Minnesota, New Jersey, et cetera, all reporting, you know, in some cases, seven to 10x uh, increases on unemployment claims over the last couple of days, you know, beginning of this week. And who knows if that's sustainable? Who knows if that's not just kind of one time thing or, or whatever? But when you start to look at this, you're like, look, you know, sitting around a 3.5% unemployment rate, anything above that can bring some pain. Um, and, and I'm right there with you. I think that like, you've got to figure out how do you help these people, especially when you're asking restaurants to shut down, you're asking bars to shut down, et cetera. You know, it's just, I hope that we don't um, kind of lose sight of the small business owner, right? Who's not sitting on tons of cash. They're not worried about stock buybacks. They're worried about how do I get, you know, to next month and continue to, you know, make money for my family or their staff. I've, I've got uh, multiple friends that own restaurants or kind of hospitality type stuff. And they're literally like, look, I have to fire half, you know, half to all of my staff in order just to continue to not have to go into bankruptcy because my cash flow or revenue went from, you know, a lot to zero because I literally am shutting down. And it's just a really kind of yeah. crazy time. So I don't think we've ever really seen something like this before. Yeah, I agree, man. It's it's tough. So, all right, listen, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Before I let you go, you got to answer Aliens. You already told us your favorite book, but uh, believer or non-believer? You know, I, I was I was a biotech uh, genetic guy um, by trade, and um, there's, there's a great quote um, <clears throat> by Douglas Adams, who uh, the famous author, and I'm going to massacre the quote, so I'm sorry. But it's something along the lines of, you know, um, can we appreciate the garden for being beautiful without having to believe that fairies live underneath? And he's, of course, probably talking about atheism. I have no idea. But, you know, there's so much wonder and amazing things in our world, um, you know, and, with, with, and thinking about the natural world and, and look at things that come out of the ocean during the tsunamis and exploration and so much wonderment, um, even as terrible it is, like the, the fact that there's these tiny viruses that can cause such a, a massive disruption to our entire planet and world. Um, you know, that do, do I uh, believe that aliens are possible? Absolutely. Um, I think it's one of two camps. They're either 
uh, super smart and leaving us alone, or they're probably just telling out there. But like many things, it wouldn't surprise me either way. Um, I, I don't think, uh, you know, my, my little bitty brain is really able to comprehend that. There's an old Asimov short story, and I'm not going to be able to remember the name. I'll send it to you. We can put it in show notes uh, that, that kind of touches on this um, perfectly. And uh, I'll, I'll leave it to the readers because I don't want to spoil it. But uh, it's a great book. So, yeah, I, I, I imagine my, my bet would be there are. Uh, but uh, um, if I live in L.A., so they probably live amongst us already. If you walk up to, to various parts of L.A., <laughs> it may be here already. So you brought up the ocean. Uh, I usually ask people, uh, would you rather go to space or to the depths of the ocean? Which one is kind of more intriguing to you? Um, you know, I come from a family of aerospace guys. My dad was an old school, uh, Martin Marietta Lockheed. Um, you know, when he passed away, I, I very fondly remember, um, going through a lot of his files that were somehow stamped confidential that he seemed to keep, but shouldn't have. Uh, my brother works on rockets at Northrop. Uh, I had started out as an aerospace engineer, um, before I realized that actually entailed a lot of classes in statics and dynamics and <laughs> a lot, a lot more math than I wanted. Um, so I, you know, if you were to ask the 10 year old me, I would have said I wanted to be a, a astronaut and, and learn that aerospace engineering was not the same thing as being an astronaut, by the way. Um, so for me, it'd be, it would be space for sure. So I, I give it, I probably give it a, I, if I was a betting man, odds that, uh, it happens in our lifetime where we get to go up there, but, um, we'll see. I love the ocean too. We live right at the ocean here in Los Angeles and Manhattan beach. So I spend a lot of time, uh, floating around and, and trying to not kill myself surfing. <laughs> I love it. Where, um, where can people go uh, read the blog and then also uh, find you on Twitter? So, um, my day job is CEO and CIO of Camry Investments, which, um, the website's Camry Investment, uh, CamryInvestments.com or Camry of Funds. We manage 11 ETFs, uh, which we didn't even talk about today, which is good. Um, all quant based, all sorts of strategies, stocks, bonds, global assets, allocation, tail risk, everything in between. Uh, you can find over 2000 blog posts at MebFavor.com. Watch me pick fights on Twitter. Uh, at Meb Faber, and of course the podcast, which you'll have to come on and join us uh, one of these days too, as uh, the Meb Faber Show. And by the way, all of our books are free to download because I have a still have a running um, fight with Amazon. So if you go to our website, you can download all of our books and white papers for free. What? All right, you got to tell me real quick. What's the fight with Amazon? You know, you already hit like my main funny bone, which is the buyback topic. This is probably number two. Um, Amazon, look, love the company, use it every day, transform the world. Um, but the problem is they built kind of a crappy marketplace to where for many years, many, many, many years, uh, people could just upload whatever products they want. And so I had one many times where people would email me and say, Hey, Meb, trying to buy your Ivy portfolio book. Why is it 90 bucks? And I said, it's not 90 bucks. What are you talking about? It's 10 or two or whatever they are. And, uh, and I'd say, send me the link. And then I'd go to the link and it'd be kind of a wonky page where, you know, the normal book has whatever hundreds of reviews. This one may have three. Then I looked down at the publisher and the publisher was some dude's name and it was published in like 1960 or something. And what Amazon enabled was people to fraudulently upload 
um, more than one entry for a book. So mine would maybe have 10 or 20. So if you Google the IV portfolio of Meb Faber or Go Boss Allocation, the, the first one would be me. You know, they would get the right one. But if you maybe Googled Faber Ivy or something, you would get maybe the first listing would be the one that's 90 bucks. So it was an arbitrage where intelligent people and wherever they may be would list fraudulent versions of the book. Now you'd still get the book, but instead of paying 10, you would pay 90. And so um, that's a really terrible way to, to destroy trust. Now, Amazon didn't care because they got paid uh, and the seller didn't care because they got paid, but it hurts both the author as well as the buyer. Um, so I emailed Jeff one day, Bezos, and let them know. And we did a post on Twitter where I was like, by the way, authors, I'll send a bottle of wine to the person who has the most fraudulent books. And someone had like 60. I think Jim O'Shaughnessy, who's, who's been a guest, I think, on your podcast, had like 20. Um, and eventually they cleaned it up. And so you you don't find that as much anymore. There's also fake products on there. Don't get me started. Um, and there's also money laundering where if you steal a credit card and go buy something that may be listed in the far corner, that's like 500 bucks. Um, that's a way of laundering money. And so I had a buddy who sold one day, like $20,000 worth of his books. And he's a quant nerd. I'm like, nobody's buying your books. What, what's going on? It's like, I don't know. Somebody just bought 20 grand worth. Um, but you know, you, you find these situations going on anyway, hopefully they've cleaned it all up. Um, I think there'll probably be a multi-billion dollar settlement at some point, but the good news for investors is all my books are free now. So I had enough and I just threw them online and said, I don't want to pick the fight anymore. <laughs> I love it. Free books. Go get them. All right, man. Listen, thanks so much. I appreciate it. We'll, uh, we'll get this out soon and I uh, hope people enjoy it. Pump, be safe. All your listeners, please be safe and uh, best, uh, best of luck investing in this uh, tough time. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.